From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Many of us are at ease talking about remembering various stages of our lives, infancy and childhood, our young adulthood, middle ages. But when it comes to the end of our lives, many of us are less open, maybe because of fears or avoidance of the unknown or the awareness of the finality of death. A new book called Finishing Our Story, Preparing for the End of Life, helps us understand this final stage. And here in the HealthLink on Air studio is the author, Dr. Gregory Eastwood. He's a physician and ethicist who served for many years as president of Upstate Medical University. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Eastwood. Nice to be back here, Amber. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I know you've written many other papers and chapters and professional books, and you spent quite a bit of time, a few years, working on this book, which is for regular people. Um, why did you choose this topic? It was for non-medical audience. For non-medical. Which, which means everyone, <laughs> <laughs> and particularly the subject matter. Uh, each of us will confront our own mortality someday, if we haven't already. And of course, every one of us has had experience in having a loved one die or a good friend. Sure. So who who is this designed for? Do you envision it, um, you know, people seeking this as a resource after they get sort of a troubling diagnosis? Or do you envision adult children purchasing it for their parents? I mean, who did you have in mind? Well, as I implied in my comment a minute ago or so, it's for everyone. But I think practically, uh, it is probably for people in their mid-years and later years. I teach uh, students, medical students and nursing students and others. And uh, of course, their careers will involve uh, dying, and they probably had some experience themselves uh, with friends and relatives dying. But I think it resonates more with mid-career, mid-life people and older. So why did you want to write about this subject? Well, maybe uh, you know, I'm in maybe the third phase of my life, <laughs> the future will tell. And uh, also, I've had the privilege of having an interesting career. As you said, I was president here at Upstate for a long time, from the early 90s until about a decade ago. And since that time, most of, most of the time, I've been teaching ethics, uh, medical ethics, and also on the ethics consult service for a university hospital. And that experience has been very uh, eye-opening for me. Uh, it, it really has reinforced some of the things I knew already, but I've been dealing in those consultations with patients, with their families, with nurses, doctors, social workers, struggling with some of the issues at end of life. So I don't wanted to say something about it, and I just felt compelled to, to write this book. Well, the book um, talks about dying as being a process. Mm -hmm. So walk me through what that process consists of. Well, the process, I, I make a little quip about that. I say the process of dying in the first chapter, the, the chapter is titled, Dying Isn't What It Used to Be. Um, and it certainly isn't. And the process of dying is quite different than it was several decades ago. The quip is that death is the same. <laughs> it's, you know, when we die, we're dead, at least in a physical sense. The ending is the same. The ending is the same. But the way we get there now, as opposed to several decades ago, is quite different. I think most listeners can, can relate to that, that uh, in the past, and I, in the book, I recall my first memory when I was three years old, and my grandmother, my father's mother, had died in her mid-70s of a stroke. And I, that memory is standing in her home where she had been 
put out onto a table and it was the wake uh, and friends and relatives and a minister and so on came by. That was it. She died suddenly. There was no fuss, no gadgetry. Uh, the minister and the church were just a few blocks away and so on. And she was in her home. And she was in her home, surrounded by her husband, my grandfather, and her children, uh, so on. And um, now, I think most people can relate to this. Most people, not all, but most people die in the hospital. Often it's attended by some kind of ga- what I call gadgetry, a ventilator, uh medications to keep your blood pressure going, and so on. I think the listeners can fill in all the details from their own experience for this. So dying seems like it's an emotional activity or there's a lot of emotions involved in it. But mm-hmm. in order, if you're like, if you're planning for the final chapter of your life or your mm-hmm. death, do you need to remove the emotions to do that? I don't think you need to remove the emotions. What you need to do is try to understand the process. Um, The title of the book, of course, is Finishing Our Story. That's the main title. And the subtitle is Preparing for the End of Life. And in the book, particularly the last chapter, which is called Finishing Our Story, I talk about the phenomenon that each of us undergoes, and that is we create a narrative of our life, whether we're aware of it or not. And as life proceeds in our middle years and later years, we have a story about uh, the beginning and the middle and the end. And we are the author of that story pretty much throughout our lives, except perhaps at the end of life, we may not be the author. And that would be because we can't be the author. We might be uh, in a coma, we might be demented, we might be uh, affected in some way. And I, I talk about that, and that's part of preparing for the end of life. Uh, understanding what it might be like at the end of life. Uh, Do you want to have some control over those decisions at the end of life? Uh, Who would you appoint or uh, select to to make some of those decisions for you? So uh, it's a complicated process. It's, as I say, it leads to the same thing as always has in the past to, to death, but the process is really quite different now. You've also got a chapter called The Good Life. Mm-hmm. What does that have to so do with So The Good that? Life, that's the second chapter, and that has to do with our concepts of quality of life. And why is that important? Well, it's important because many of the decisions we make at the end of life or anticipating the end of life are affected by how we regard quality of our lives. What? How important is that to us? And it's People range quite a bit. Some people place a high value on their ability to think and do and walk and participate and so on. And so that is part of quality of life. Uh, And so that affects some of the decisions we might make. Others uh, place a high value on life itself. Uh, there are some people who think that the spark of life is the most important. And, And doctors and nurses and the health facilities should do everything possible to preserve that spark of life. So it's not a uniform approach to the, but it's important for us to understand how we feel about uh, quality of life and life itself. So very individual. Very individual, yes. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Gregory Eastwood. He's a physician and ethicist who served for many years as president of Upstate Medical University, and he's got a new book from Oxford University Press called Finishing Our Story, Preparing for the End of Life. 
What does your book say about physician-assisted death and other forms of suicide at the end of life? So physician-assisted death is a very controversial subject. I don't have to tell the listeners that. I think most people appreciate that. Here in the state of New York, it's come up uh, from time to time, and uh, it has been rejected, although there is a substantial population of the state that is in sympathy with it. So so what is physician-assisted death, first of all? Well, it is uh, in the states that allow it now, and there are seven states and the District of Columbia. The first state was Oregon in the mid-1990s. In those states, the law is very specific. And it says that if a person uh, seeks physician-assisted death, they can approach a physician who agrees to participate. Physicians have the option. They don't have to. And they can seek a prescription for a drug, usually a barbiturate, that will kill them if they take the drug. The statistics on this are quite interesting. Uh, First of all, I should point out that patients need to be certified by two independent physicians that they have less than six months to live. That that prediction is not always accurate, as listeners know, but at least that is a a safeguard. And then there is a two-week cooling off or waiting period, let's say, between the request uh, the patient has to the physician and the actual writing of the of the prescription. So it can't this isn't a decision that can be made in haste it, or it, it's not that's correct. And uh, family uh, of the patient are encouraged to participate and so on. Uh, this 6 month prediction of death also is accompanied by the requirement that they have to be uh, legal residents of the state. So that pretty much prevents someone hopping from one state to another although it has happened in the past. New York State is not one of the No, seven. but there are, there, there's a substantial uh, group of people who are interested in doing this. This probably will come up again soon uh, as a referendum or some form where the citizens of New York State will have to make uh, a decision about it. I started to say that the statistics are interesting in this. The, the, the people who oppose this and still oppose it to some extent were worried that physician-assisted death would be a way that disadvantaged people, people with disabilities, maybe poor people, maybe ethnic minorities would predominantly um, use this or be coerced to use it. The facts are that now with the experience in these seven states and the District of Columbia, the typical person who takes advantage of this is white, middle class, and male. Now that by no means, that's, that's everyone, of course, that, but that is the typical person. And also, uh, various studies are a little bit different, but one well-known study a few years ago from University of Washington, they looked at the number of people who inquired about this, about half take advantage of it, so half do not. Those half who take advantage of it and get a prescription, about 60% actually take the pills, and about 40% do not take the pills. That's interesting. When asked why they don't take the pills, or they say it's, it's a matter of control. Uh, here I am at the end of life. Uh, I may be in a great deal of pain. It's nice to know there's an option. Interesting. In my, my, that chapter that I talk about physician-assisted death, or I think it's titled something like, May I Kill Myself?, I point out also that there are other options. Uh, One that seems to be gaining in use 
is called VSED, Voluntary Stopping Eating and Drinking. And this is a very simple thing in concept, difficult to execute. And that is people just at the end of life can stop eating and drinking and uh, death ensues within a week or two weeks. It takes a lot of willpower and it takes a lot of willpower on the The caregivers, probably the family. Diane Rehm, the radio personality, wrote a book about this because that was the method her husband chose when he was in his 80s and was failing. And so if listeners have access to that, I think it's called something like On My Own Time or something. I can't remember the exact, but it's by Diane Rehm. Very readable book and describes uh, her experience and his experience with that. Well, let me ask you, since you're an ethicist, is is physician-assisted death or suicide at the end of life, is that an ethical choice? So let me answer that question by uh, recalling an exercise we do in one of my classes for medical students. And we ask students to answer that question. The question goes something like this. If you lived in a state that permitted physician-assisted death, would you participate and why? And Or would you not participate and why? Over the last five or six years, about half the students say they would and half would not. And this is after a thorough discussion of the topic. Why would a doctor choose to participate? I think those doctors who choose to participate feel that caring for patients as they're dying and through death is all part of the deal. Uh, And that is a method of relieving suffering. And the primary duty of a doctor is to, uh, to attend to the welfare of a patient. So those doctors who participate include this in improving the welfare of the patient. Of course, the exact opposite view is held by doctors who don't participate. They say, I'm here to take care of the patient. I'm not here to kill the patient. <laughs> and so, uh, you, and there, there are views in between, of course, but those are the, uh, the poles of the views. And it, it's going to be that way, I think, for a long, long time. And those are both legitimate views. Have you noticed that changing over time, or do you anticipate it'll continue changing? I think it is changing, and it's changing in the direction that more doctors and more people in the general population are sympathetic with uh, with taking matters in your own hands if you feel that's the time to do it and doing something to kill yourself. It's interesting, um, studies of doctors and their views about end of life and uh, compared to non-physicians uh, or non-medical people and show that physicians are much less likely to opt for so-called life-saving procedures at the end of life. Uh, in other words, they're more likely to say, I, I don't want to be revived after my heart stops. I don't want to have tubes in me, you know, this or that, ventilators, what have you. Again, these are, are trends. They're not absolutes. And there are some doctors who feel one way and other way. And uh, so that's an interesting observation also. Well, your book sounds like it's a very useful guide for everyone, as you say. Um, My guest has been Dr. Gregory Eastwood, author of the new Oxford University Press book, Finishing Our Story, Preparing for the End of Life. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.